Here we go. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Essential Doctrine is our teaching series. We kicked off last weekend what every Christian should know, and we come now to the very first letter in the acronym Doctrine, the letter D, the deity of Jesus. Keep your Bibles open there at Matthew 16. We'll go back to... Those verses, verses 13 through 28. Let me remind you of uh, the key verse for this teaching series. Anybody remember that? It's 1 Timothy 4.16. This whole series is based on, on that verse, and it says this, Keep a close watch on what? Anybody? On yourself and the teaching, doctrine, healthy doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now listen to me. Your salvation is dependent upon you hearing that and doing what he says. Because you're going to go through storms in life, and like a pilot, if you're not instrument trained, our instruments are God's word, you're going to experience spatial disorientation, and you're going to crash and burn. Our tendency is to go with our feelings. Oftentimes, our feelings are not in touch with the reality of God's word, and so we have to reorder our thoughts, our feelings, our actions back to God's word. Otherwise, we will crash. I've seen it time and time again. So he says, keep a close watch on yourself and making sure you yourself are you're lining up with what God's word says. Not what you feel, but what has been revealed to us through his word. That's our reality. And so sometimes when we go through storms, whether it be suffering or uh, we're someone that is a very smart skeptic coming after us, asking us a lot of questions. Our head is spinning and our feelings are every which way. And we got to go back to the instrument panel of God's word. And so I just, I wanted to re-emphasize that, what we talked about last week. Now we're, we're going to talk about who is Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. Take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. Who is Jesus Christ? 
Since the first century, that question has never failed to create a stir. And the answers have ranged from demon to deity. No one is more loved and hated than Jesus Christ. Yet those who dare, who dare to look beyond the prejudices and encounter the historical person and work of the real Jesus Christ are never, 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 ever the same. And so the name Jesus is derived from the Old Testament name Joshua. And that name means God is our salvation, or Yahweh, God is our salvation. The title Christ, that's his title, is the word which means Messiah, one chosen and anointed by God, the Messiah who delivers God's people. So in the very essence of his name and his title, it's, it's pronouncing our salvation. It's telling us that he came to rescue us. Now, let me give you a summary of the text that we just read here, kind of give you the outline for it. In uh, verses 13 through 20, chapter 16 of Matthew, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Pretty profound statement. Remember, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they go through their list. And then he says, who do you say I am? And then that's when Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. And then in verses 21 through 23, we have the gospel. Jesus gives us the gospel. He foretells his suffering, death, and resurrection. And then, in verses 24 through 28, he tells us how to become a follower of of him, what that looks like, and he talks about taking up our cross and following him. So here's three questions we're looking at here this morning. You can see there on your notes, who do people say Jesus is? That's the first question we're going to deal with. When we look out on the landscape of our culture, we're going to look at various major cults and religions and ask the question, well, who do they say Jesus is? And then what does the Bible say about Jesus? We're gonna look at what his claims, his personal claims, and then uh, his character. And then the big question that we'll end with is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? So let's take that first question here. Who do people say Jesus is? That's found in verses 13 and 14 of our text. Now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warns the church there in Corinth. He says that I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts or your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then he goes on, he says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed... Don't be so quick to, to accept what they have to say. In fact, he finishes it up. He says, don't be so gullible to, to just agree with them and say, yep, that's okay. He's saying, don't do that. Don't let that lead you astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's only one Christ, the one that I proclaim to you, and there will be those that will come around that will proclaim other Christs. That's what he says. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaimed... Don't put up with whatever anyone tells you. So pretty, pretty strong warning. Now let's go through and let's see what other major beliefs, major religions and cults believe about Jesus. Here's the first one, Islam. What does Islam believe? One of many prophets like Muhammad sent by God but not the son of God or God. That's what they believe. Buddhism, he was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism, he is a teacher, guru, an avatar. His death didn't atone for sins. You see a kind of a consistent pattern here thus far, kind of denying the deity of Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. How about Scientology? He is really mentioned... He is not the creator and did not die for sins. The more you get into Scientology, the weirder it gets, okay? It's just really bizarre. I mean, any religion started by a science fiction writer that has Tom Cruise as an evangelist doesn't seem very valid to me, okay? It just seems really way out there. And then let's take Mormonism. If you go back to their origin of Mormonism, it's really bizarre also. It's really a, it's a strange belief. In fact, if you were to ask most Mormons, I've had a lot of Mormon friends both work in construction, I grew up 
uh, in my high school, had a lot of Mormon friends, construction, my time on the fire department, great people, amazing people. And yet, if you were to ask most of them, which I did, they would say, oh yeah, we believe in the same Jesus that you believe in, in the Bible Jesus. That's what most would say. Most don't know what their forefathers taught, what, uh, what a lot of their early leaders taught. And so as you dive into what their early leaders taught, this is what they would say. He is a separate God from the Father Elohim. They do not believe in the Trinity. He was created through sexual union between Elohim and Mary, and his death does not provide full atonement for all sin. And so they're, they're classified. By the way, they've worked really hard over the last couple of decades to try to become more mainstream Christianity. They can't. They're not. They must denounce Joseph Smith as a prophet. He, he fails miserably on the prophet test found in the Bible. Besides that, they have three books that they put at the same level as, as the Bible, which are Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the Book of Mormon. And it just, it doesn't take much, which, which really blows my mind. I think people are really intellectually lazy for the most part. Just dive into them and begin to look at what has been written and compare it to Christianity, historical Christianity, and what the Bible teaches. It's really obvious, really obvious. And, and by the way, anytime I, I've said that, the last time I said something like that, I had Mormons come up to me at the end of the service and want to dispute with me. And if you're a Mormon here, I'd love to talk with you about that. Because most Mormons don't know what they believe. Look into their historical documents and by their, their leaders and begin to understand what they believe. And then you have the, the JWs, the Jehovah Witnesses. As I was coming here this morning, 35th Avenue and Union Hills, there were two standing out there in the corner. And uh, they looked really nice. But their, their doctrine is demonic, as is all of these doctrines of demons and and the bible is clear about that he is not god they deny the very one who can save them they do not believe in the deity of jesus christ and so he is not god jesus is not god before he lived on earth he was michael the archangel a created being that became a man they they have a, a different bible to do not read their bible do not use their bible it's it's called the new world translation they've they've messed it up, okay? They've doctored it up to fit their beliefs. And I could go into more, I'm not with that, but, uh, but that's the truth, that's so, as you look at that, and then you have liberal Christians, and we could go on with this list, but we're gonna stop there. Liberal Christians, uh, there's churches here in the valley that would classify themselves as Christians, but uh, they would say, well, he's not God, and he didn't resurrect from the grave, but he was a great moral teacher and a leader. And that was popularized really with uh, Oprah Winfrey and even this movie, The Da Vinci Code, popularized this view a few years ago. And it's based on the Gnostic Gospels. Now, if anybody ever comes to you and says, hey, you know that there are lost books of the Bible and they have found them. <laughs> I've had people say that to me. I go, no, they haven't. There are no lost books of the Bible. All the books of the Bible have been found. And they're in the 66 books that we have Old Testament, New Testament. In fact, those lost books of the Bible, which are called the Gnostic Gospels, are fraudulent. Now, if you want to do any more research on this, you can actually go to gotquestions.org and, and ask that question about the Gnostic Gospels. They'll go through that and help you to understand that. And they'll also give you, uh, show you how we got our Bible, the canon of Scripture. It's very brief, but I mean, I mean it's, it's an easy way to, to, to look at that. And so let me just say this, that anyone who would make a claim that all religions are equally right, in our pluralistic world, people are saying that, and anyone who would make a claim that all religions are equally right is not listening very well to what each teaches and is in violation of the first law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, because if you, and, and this is just this is just who Jesus is. I mean, it gets messier as you work through each of these belief systems. There's major contradiction even within each of these belief systems, but particularly in comparison to historical Christianity. And so, what is the main argument for Christianity? 
Jesus himself. It's Jesus, and Jesus Christ is the single most influential person who ever lived. Now, now why has Jesus, how did he take this little ragtag group of people there in the first century, and after his resurrection, it exploded. They grew exponentially, turning the Roman world upside down, and some 2,000 years later, he continues to make an impact in people's lives, transforming their lives. Explain that to me. Well, th- I will. Thank you for asking, okay? <laughs> Why has Jesus had the impact that he has had? The answer can only come from looking at him, at his life, both his claims, so what did Jesus say about himself, and then his character, and that's what we're going to do. Take a look at your notes here. So, so what does the Bible say about Jesus? Now, let me give you a quick answer. So uh, if the Jehovah Witnesses come to you or anybody comes to you and says, well, the Bible doesn't actually teach that, God, that Jesus is God or Jesus never really said that he was God or anything like that, and I always want to go, have you read the Bible? It's like, what, are you, what Bible are you reading? The New World Translation? Well, I can understand why you would come to that conclusion. That's, that's a bad translation. And so, but here's an easy answer. It doesn't say in the Bible that Jesus is God. It's all over the place, okay? And let me give you just four quick references. They're right there on your notes. John chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and Revelation 1. It it talks about the deity of Christ. So that's, that's oftentimes what I'll go to when people say, well, it's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, it is in the Bible. Have you read, have you read John chapter 1? How about Colossians 1? How about Hebrews 1? How about Revelation 1? Go back and read those chapters. It's talking about the deity of Christ. When I say deity of Christ, I'm saying he's God. He's God. God in the flesh. He came to this earth. That's what we're talking about. And so let's take a look at his claims. Here's his first claim. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. That's in John 14, 6. The way to God. Not a way to God. No, no, why are Christians so exclusive saying that Jesus is the only way to God? Because that's what Jesus said. We didn't say that. We're only saying it because that's what he said. And he's saying it right here. He's not saying, I am a way. I am the way, the truth about God. You want to know God? Get to know me. You want to know the way to God? It's through me. You want to go to heaven? It's through me. That's what he's saying. And you want to have the life of God? It's only through me. That's what he's saying. He made that claim, John 14, 6. He claimed to be sinless and able to forgive sins. John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? This is Jesus speaking. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, if I claimed to be without sin, who would you need to talk to about that? Anybody thinking my wife, Nancy? Why are you guys laughing? She doesn't know anything. She says I'm wicked and evil, but she's not right. No, she, she knows a lot about me, and I'm, I'm a pretty messed up dude. And she would, she would expose me as being a liar. And if I said I don't ever lie and... I don't ever do anything wrong. She would, that would, she would certainly, uh, you just look at those that are closest to me. But let's look at those that are closest to Jesus. In fact, what's interesting, uh, have you ever read any of those books, tell-all books about, you know, it's, it's like maybe a sibling tells all about their other, the one who's a fraud and, and they're a mess. Well, guess what? There's two tell-all books in the Bible by two of Jesus' half-brothers. They're exposing Jesus as being the Son of God. Yeah, who are, who are these two guys? Anybody? James, it's actually James and Jude. James and Jude, half-brothers of Jesus. It's in the Bible. They wrote Bible about their brother. They grew up with him. And they're saying, he's the Messiah. He's God. Now, I tried hard to get my sisters to believe that I was God. (laughs) 
but they wouldn't buy it. I've tried to get my wife to believe that, but she just laughs every time I make any kind of an attempt towards that. But, uh, but this, is, this is pretty fascinating. And, and not only that, what's interesting about this is that besides all of that, two books written in the, in the New Testament about Jesus, two half-brothers of Jesus, but uh, be, besides the fact, besides that fact, there's also another fact that all of his disciples who were up close and personal to Jesus died deaths as martyrs proclaiming the name of Christ, proclaiming that he is the Messiah. All of them except for Judas who betrayed him. Oh, and then there was John. <laughs> they tried to murder him by boiling him in a, in a pot of oil and he wouldn't die because God was not finished with him and so they exiled him out to the island of Patmos where he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, but they all died. And, and many times people will argue, well, hey, th this was all uh, cunningly devised fables by these guys because of the popularity and all that. Popularity? They were murdered. They died for their faith. And, they, and, and, and you know, you're saying that they made this up? It was collusion? Here's what's interesting about that idea is that people will die, certainly, for what they believe to be true. People do that all the time. But no one, no one in their right mind will die for a lie. And even if Jesus made that up, he, he died? He died for a lie? Are you insane? Mark 2, 5, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So not only did he claim to be sinless, but he also said that he forgave sins. He forgave sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now let's just say that Josh, he was the guy up here leading worship this morning. Say Josh, at the end of the worship set, he goes back to Phil, he's over all of the sound back there, and he goes up back there and punches him in the nose, and his nose bleeds because he didn't like the way that he did the sound. Didn't make him sound very good. And his nose bleeds, and so I go over to Josh, and I say, Josh, that was horrible, but I forgive you. What do you think Phil would say? <laughs> Phil would say, you can't forgive him. I'm the one that forgives him. He hit me in the nose. See, my nose is bloody. So for Jesus to forgive people, that had to have shocked them, saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, who are you to forgive people? And well, I'm God. That's who I am, that's what he's saying. This is the claim that he's making. Not only is he sinless, but that he forgives sin. And in fact, Jesus forgives sin because he is God, and all sin is ultimately against him. That's why he forgives sin. Remember in... David, King David's uh, psalm of repentance after he committed adultery, murder, betrayal of a whole nation, he, he repents, and in his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, this is what he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, God's laws are not arbitrary, they're not random, they're not busy work. They not only reflect God's character, but also his perfect love and infinite wisdom for how he wants us to live. And so sin, in essence, is a trampling not only on the very character of God, but a trampling on his love and wisdom. And it's actually saying, so when I take, uh, when I begin to live my life outside of his directives for me in his word, in essence, I'm saying to God, I'm smarter than you and I'm more loving than you. All sin is ultimately against him. Here's another thing is that he claimed to come from heaven. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here's my question for you. How do we know there is a God? This is what we teach in our game of life. How do we know there is a God? Well, we know there's a God not by uh, human speculation, 
but by divine revelation. So the answer to that, so someone comes up to you, they're an atheist or whatever, and I say, well, okay, smarty pants Christian, how do you know there is a God? And here's how you should answer them, is I know there's a God because he has revealed himself to us. And of course, the next question that they should ask, well, how has he revealed himself to us? I'm glad you asked. He has revealed himself to us through creation and conscience and commandments, his word. He wrote a book, it's called the Bible, and ultimately he revealed himself to us through Jesus. How do we know there is a God? He showed up here. That's the deity of Christ. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. So God reveals himself to us through creation, conscience, commandments, Christ. I alliterate it in C, it's easy to remember. But you can find that in Psalm 19. You can find that in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. In fact, Romans 1 says that there, that there is... Um, there is enough revelation and creation about God that, the, that man is without excuse, just in creation. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. The Bible would say, you're a fool. Open your eyes. Look around. There's plenty of evidence. And so he claimed to come from heaven. He claimed to be the son of man. This is Jesus' favorite way to identify himself. He uses this some 90 times in the Gospels. And why, it's so, why is that so significant, son of man? Well, he's referencing actually Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And Old Testament book, Daniel is prophesying, he's making a prediction about the Messiah and the coming Messiah who will save the world. And basically Jesus is saying, that's me. So some 90 times he refers to himself as the son of man. And in fact, what's fascinating about prophecy, let me just say this. How many prophecies did Jesus, and when we talk about prophecies, we're talking about predictions in the Old Testament that with his first coming he fulfilled. How many did he fulfill? Like predictions. You think in maybe 10 or 20 or 30? All of them. He, he fulfilled all of them, that's right. That's a smart aleck answer, isn't it? <laughs> That's a good answer, though. He did fulfill all of them. He did fulfill all of them, but how many were all of them? 300. 300. So there's this formula you use for, uh, it's, uh, it's called figuring out the probability factor, and it's a mathematical formula for the chance factor of someone accidentally fulfilling just a few of those? What are the odds of somebody accidentally fulfilling, what are the odds of somebody accidentally fulfilling 300 predictions in the Old Testament? It's not gonna happen. But, but there's a book uh, called The Search for the Messiah. In here he quotes the odds of someone just fulfilling eight of these messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Just take eight, he says. So in, in the book Science Speaks, Peter Stoner estimates the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of these messianic prophecies as being one in 10 to the 17th power. How overwhelming is this probability? Well, Stoner illustrates this by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. That's a pretty, good, pretty big state. And they will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars, stir up the whole mass thoroughly all over the state, blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them come true in any one man from, from their day to the present day. It is clear, he goes on, it is clear the chance had nothing to do with the fulfillment of these 300 predictions. I mean, the evidence, there's plenty of evidence for any serious thinker, Jesus fulfilled 300 
predictions in the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's really interesting as you read through Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, who's Jewish. <laughs> He's wanting to convince all of his Jewish friends and family members, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, because he constantly is referring back to the Old Testament. Look, he fulfilled this. This is what was said in the Old Testament. Jesus did it. This is what it said in the Old Testament. Jesus did it here again. It's just, it's a wonderful book to read as you read through there. You just go, yep, 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 over and over, over and again. He claimed people could pray to him as God. What if I said that when you come up this morning, you can pray to me? That would be weird. I would get fired. The elders would fire me, okay? That w- that's not, they, they would, or check me into the hospital. They'd probably check me into the hospital. We're going to be nice. We're going to be gracious. He's, he's, we don't know what's going on. But Jesus said, whoever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is John 14, 13 through 14. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And along with praying in his name and praying to him, along with that, Jesus performed many, many miracles. We're not even going to spend any time on that, but that's, you can go through and read the four gospel accounts and you will be stunned by what Jesus did. He claimed to be God and confirmed to others he was God. Mark 14, 61 through 64, Matthew 26, 63 through 65. He claimed that the Bible is all about him. John 5, 39 through 40, you search the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees here. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So when you study God's word, if it doesn't take you to Jesus, you're missing the big E on the I chart, okay? You're not seeing clearly. It's like, it's about Jesus. It should take you to Jesus. It'll help you to get to know Jesus, both Old and New Testament. It will take you to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In fact, here's a question. You can discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Is that, is the Bible, this is really important by how you read the Bible, is the Bible primarily a book about what you must do to be right with God, or is it primarily a book about what God has done to make us right with him. It determines how you're going to read the book. Real quick, ask the person next to you, how would they answer that? Yes, everyone should know this answer, yes. Everybody, if you hang out here at Desert Breeze, you should know it. But I'll tell you what, if you, a lot of churches teach the Bible as if it's a book about what you must do to be right with God. So they teach a constant, they give you a constant supply of self-help and how-to and moralism. And, and that's not primarily what the Bible's about. The book is primarily a, a book about what God has done. Now listen to me. It has been done for you. It's a gift. And so what we do is only in response to what has been done. You're not earning anything with God. It's been earned for you through Jesus Christ. That's what's so amazing about the gospel. It's yours through Christ. And so... When it talks about what we should do, it's in response to what has been done. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. And so when that gets a hold of your heart, yes, you will do things that you've never done before. It will transform your life in every way. And so here's the next one. He claimed to be the ruler and judge of the world. Matthew 28, 18. John 5, 22 and 24. He claimed to be able to satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. This is, this is one, of my, one of my favorites right here. Listen to what uh, this verse, this is a great memory verse. John 
John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, this is Jesus speaking, this is a claim he's making, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, now this coming to him is not where you just uh, came to him once and you confessed him as savior and, and you moved on with your life. This is a coming to him every day. The grammar here is present active indicative. It's just like you come to me and keep coming to me and keep coming to me. You have a relationship with him. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What is he he's talking about here? He's talking about all of us have an inconsolable human longing that nothing in creation can satisfy. Only he can satisfy. You can never get out of romance or money or achievements or career or acquisitions what only a relationship with Christ can give you. You can chase them as long as you want to, whatever you're chasing, but only the creator can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's what he said. That was one of his claims. He claimed that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the done part. He did that for us. And then he claimed we will be judged in the end primarily on our attitude toward him. When we stand before him, we will be judged on how we re received him or rejected him. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So that's his claims. That's just a short list of his claims. Now we've got to look at his character. What is his character? His claims seem so self-centered, but his character is anything but self-centered. In him, we see qualities and virtues that are combined that are just strikingly beautiful. Revelations 5, 5, and 6 says, it really refers to Jesus as both the lion and the lamb. So Jesus combines majesty and meekness. He combines these two characteristics and, and just it's absolutely breathtaking when you see this in the life of Christ. Majesty and meekness. Second, uh, Second Peter 1.16, uh, Peter writes, remember the guy that denied Christ three times? He writes, he says, these were not cunningly devised fables that we came up with. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And yet, seeing his majesty, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see in that majesty an unbelievable meekness, infinite highness, infinite humility. Despite his high claims, he is never pompous. You never see him standing on his own dignity. Absolutely breathtaking. Self-sufficiency and total trust in God. That's the next one. John 2, 24, he says, I, I do not entrust myself to people, but I trust my Father completely. He entrusted himself to the Father. Total trust in God. Tenderness and toughness. In Matthew 18 and 19, he says, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He's loving on them. There's a tenderness, and yet in the same breath, he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and, and drowned in the sea. Whoa. That's heavy. Tenderness and toughness. Tenderness without weakness and toughness without harshness. He spoke the truth. Passion without prejudice. Passion for people without prejudice. Jesus ate with tax collectors who were collaborators with the Roman occupiers. He also welcomed and ate with prostitutes. Yet he also ate repeatedly with the Pharisees. I've got all the Bible references there. You can study that on your own. He d deliberately and, and tenderly touched lepers who were contaminated outcasts in desperate need of human touch. I mean, he ate with everybody. He, was, he had this passion for people without prejudice. He was loving and welcoming to all and yet insistent on truth. So unlike us, where we speak the truth without love or we have a lot of love without truth, he knew how to balance that. You see that in his life. 
with Zacchaeus, Luke 19. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was stunned by Jesus' love and acceptance, yet transformed by Jesus' call to repent. When Jesus encounters women who were considered sexually immoral by the society, he startles onlookers with his respect and graciousness. Yet he points out to the Samaritan woman the wreckage of her many failed relationships with men and how she can find in him the sole satisfaction she is seeking in men. That's John chapter 4. With the woman that was caught in adultery, Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Do you hear the love and the truth in that statement? He welcomed and befriended the impure and called them to follow him. Mark 2, 13 through 17. He was full of mercy and grace without a hint of bitterness. He forgave the friends who let him down in the hour of his greatest need, Matthew 26, 40 through 43. And he forgave the enemies who were crucifying him, Luke 23, 34. Here's what I also find interesting about Jesus is that there's this versatility and wisdom in every situation. Let me explain that. All of us have certain uh, personality types. Uh, one of those would be that sitting here in this congregation uh, this weekend are both, are, are both uh, extroverts and introverts. Right here. Kind of our personality types. Uh, extroverts tend to, uh, before I tell you what extroverts do, how many would say that they're an extrovert? Show of hands, show of hands, okay, okay. Extrovert, we're proud of that. Yes, we are. <laughs> How many introverts? Introverts, they have a hard time raising their hand right now. They're just kind of bashful. <laughs> just like, oh, no, 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 I'm an introvert. If you're asking me to raise my hand, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so, so here's the interesting thing about extroverts and introverts. Extroverts tend to probably talk more than they should. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And, and then introverts tend to not talk when they should. They need to speak up more, and maybe extroverts need to not talk so much. But Jesus was, he had this versatility and wisdom in every situation. He is blunt and confrontational with a religious leader, John 3. And in the very next chapter, he is patient and gentle with a woman who is an outcast, John 4. He approaches two sisters struggling with the same grief at their brother's death with totally different responses. He responds to Martha with truth and to Mary with tears. And you're going, Jesus, what's going on here? He knew exactly what they needed. He's absolutely amazing when you watch him as he responds to people. Jesus has this fearlessness in crisis. He was constantly saying to people, fear not. Don't be afraid of the storm. Remember he said that to his disciples who were freaking out <laughs> in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 24. I mean, these guys are tough guys, and they're thinking they're going down with the ship, and he says, fear not, and then he calms the storm, and then they freak out over Jesus, okay? They're going, who is this guy? Oh, my goodness. They're more afraid of him now than they are of the storm. He says, don't be afraid of death. If I have your hand, it is just sleep. Mark 5, 35 through 43. At the end of his life, when we see him bound and on trial, he seems most free of all from fear as he is confidently telling one of his judges that he has no power to do anything that isn't part of the divine plan. You have no power except the power that has been given to you. He looks right in the eyes of his judge and says that with cool, calm, and collected, knowing that that was all part of the sovereign hand of God. We could go on with this. So what is the main argument for Christianity? Jesus himself, his claims, and his character. So let's ask the question here. Here's, here's really an important question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you? Who do you say Jesus is? Your answer to that question doesn't determine his destiny. It determines your eternal destiny. Here's your next fill in the blank. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's the challenge that C.S. Lewis gives. When you listen to his claims, you look at his character 
When you look at his claims, you'd say, this guy's either a liar or lunatic or he's indeed Lord. There's no evidence of, and when you look at his character, that he's a liar or, or a lunatic. And uh, yet, he, there's no other choices other than those three choices. Remember, we said that leader, great man, great man wouldn't say the things that he said. And it's based on the Gnostic Gospels and they've been proven to be fraudulent, okay? So that's not, a, that's not an option. Jesus didn't give us that option. There's only three, liar, lunatic, or he's the Lord. Lord basically means that he's in charge and calls the shots. He came to save us from our sins. Go back to the text now. Look at the text. Look at verses 21 through 23. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must he must, that he must suffer, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now notice this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. You hear the irony in that? Lord, you're the one that calls the shots, but right now I'm telling you how to live your life. I'm telling you what you should do. And it was nice of Peter to draw him to the side and just have a private conversation with Jesus. You don't want to confront people out in the open. And so he confronted Jesus to the side. Peter's a knucklehead. What was he thinking? Because Jesus turns it on him and rebukes him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things, and you had thought he would have said, on the things of Satan, but he says, but on the things of man, because the things of man and the things of Satan are one in the same. That's why he said that. You're either going to set your mind on the things of God, or you're going to set your mind on the things of man, which is ultimately demonic, satanic. Here's what Jesus is saying, that he must, he must do this. The suffering, murder, and resurrection of Jesus was not random. It was not something that God all of a sudden came up with, got a problem here. No, before the foundation of the world, he planned it, he prophesied it, and God performed it for our redemption. That's why he said he must do this. It was planned. It was prophesied. What I mean by prophecy, it wasn't like God was predicting the future. God is telling us ahead of time what he's going to do. That's what prophecy is. God's just saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm sovereign. I'm the one that calls the shots. I'm the one that's in charge. That's what it means to be Lord. The suffering, murder, and resurrection of Jesus was not random, but planned, prophesied, and performed. And what he gives us here is the gospel. This is the gospel. And to reject it is to set your mind on the things of fallen man, which is of Satan. And that's, he makes that very clear. See, the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. Listen to what one writer puts it this way. I love it. Ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so we can be what we dare not dream, perfect before God. This is the greatest gift at the greatest cost for the least deserving, you and I. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to me. There is no sin. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. This is the gospel. There is no sin that you have committed or sin that has been committed against you is a match 
for God's redeeming and restoring grace. That's why Jesus came to this earth. Through his suffering, he must suffer. He must die. He must resurrect, giving us fullness of life through him. So how can I be a recipient of that? Well, that's the next part of Matthew 16. Let me give you the fill in the blank here. You can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is who he said he is, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty, and he's gonna show us what that commitment looks like. Keep your Bibles open, look at verses 24 and 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What is he talking about here? Well, he explains it in the next few verses. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Look at verse 25, the first part of that, 25a. For whoever would save his life will lose it. What is he talking about there? He's helping us to explain. He's trying to help us to see that there's two ways to live. And everyone here, everyone out there is on one of these two paths. Here's the first path that he shows us. For whoever would save his life will lose it. This is the person who loves this world more than God and is seeking to maximize all that this world can give. And he says, this person will lose their life. Then he compares it with the other person. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the person who experiences Jesus as more precious, more valuable, more satisfying than anything this world can give, including life itself in this world. This person will find life. And then in verse 26, he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let me give you an illustration that I heard this last uh, spring at a conference I think it'll help us to understand this. Suppose, suppose your heart considers the worth of Jesus and the worth of this world's positions, possessions, and pleasures. We'll just call it possessions. This world's possessions. All the stuff that this world gives you. Your heart considers the worth of Jesus and the worth of this world's possessions. The gladness you could have from Jesus and the gladness you could have from this world's possessions. And suppose your heart is drawn to prefer the worth of possessions. And you turn away from Jesus as less precious than earthly possessions. Billions of people are doing that right now. Right now. And suppose you succeed, and by the end of your life, you now own everything in the world. I mean everything. You own Apple and Google, and you, you own every bank in the world. You own all the oil companies in the world, because that's, that's exactly what he's saying here. You gain the whole world. That's the the picture that Jesus is giving. You gain the whole world. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26. You own the world. And then you die. And instantly you realize that was eternal suicide. It was eternal suicide. And suppose in facing Jesus, you say, I will give everything I have. I own the world. I will give it all to you, the whole world, in return for my soul. What would Jesus, what do you think he will say? I think he will say, you would try to buy your soul with the very possessions that destroyed your soul that you preferred over me? Christ replacing, Christ belittling idols have no currency in heaven. And he will turn his face away from you and you will perish 
forever. Because verse 26 says, in effect, there is nothing a man can give in exchange for his soul. That ransom has been paid for by God. He paid that for us. And you preferred to own the world rather than to belong to Jesus. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now let me share with you what I shared last weekend. If all you have is a decision for Christ and no delight in Christ, you probably don't have Christ. We are not saved by mere decisions, but by being born again through the work of the Holy Spirit, making us into a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that is falling, a new creation that is falling out of love with this world and falling in love with Jesus. He transforms your appetites. You want him more than anything. In fact, even Jesus said, you're going to want him so badly that when sin begins to interfere, you will be willing to... He's speaking figuratively here. Cut off your own hand and pluck out your eye because you don't want anything to interfere with your relationship with him because your heart is ravished by the one who came and died in your place for your sins. Believe me, you put your faith in him, you will be forever changed. You will be ruined for anything else when he has a hold of your heart. You'll be like the people that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him. These are second generation Christians. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And this will lead to a life fully devoted to him. Let me give you the last fill in the blanks. This is what it looks like. We call it the 5G process here at Desert Breeze. We teach this in our Game of Life class. The first one is a genuine Christian, someone who's made a commitment to Christ and to a local church, genuine Christian. And then the second one is someone who's committed to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth. That's a growing Christian, genuine growing. And then someone's committed to investing their time, their talent, their finances into their local church family, that they're a part of, that's a giving Christian, and then they're committed to also contagiously sharing the gospel with the world, that's a going Christian, you do all this for the glory of God, you become a glorifying Christian, genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory, because he has ravished your heart, you love him, and you wanna live for him, that's what happens. Now, at the end of this message, I'm gonna pray here in just a minute, at the end, I'll be right up here, and uh, if you're brand new here, I'd love to meet you. If you want to make a commitment of your life to Christ or if you need prayer for any particular reason, I would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father, we know according to your word there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 so I pray for those who need to make that commitment this weekend that they would acknowledge their sin that separates them from you and believe, believe that Christ died in their place for their sins and commit their life to you and become fully devoted followers of you. Open blind eyes and deaf ears to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Stir up our hearts with greater affection for the man Christ Jesus and give us an incredible indescribable and indestructible joy in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that we would be ruined for anything else may we be fully devoted followers of Christ as we walk with you as genuine Christians and live your word as growing Christians and contribute to your work as giving Christians and make an impact in this world as going Christians all for your glory in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.